You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 46 now. This episode is called The Faith and is brought to us by Brother Jim Dillingham of the Cranston Ecclesia over in the USA. Now, God has a policy of providing personal in addition to community-wide faith validations. Paul and John, each incredible visions they had that were exclusively for them. They were not allowed to share one of the greatest challenges to a divinely accepted faith in this age is materialism. These are some of the issues that are dealt with in this episode by Brother Jim. Hope you enjoy it. Our considerations concerning God's righteousness have brought us to the principle of faith. We've defined faith as basically confidence. We also noted God's pattern of a willingness to repeatedly and patiently validate the faith of his committed servants. However, he does have his limits to that patience. The enlightened community had witnessed his powerful validations to their faith in the 10 plagues, the Red Sea crossing the Egyptian cavalry destruction, and the daily provision of food were forgotten. When the men of war panicked from their uh, faithless cowardice due to the fear provoking reports of 10 of the 12 spies. While God is willing to provide faith validations, he does have limits to his patience. In the same way, Jesus was willing to demonstrate miraculous validations for believing his testimony but became aggravated when the enlightened community to whom he was directed to preach kept asking for more and more and more miraculous signs. If there was, as if there was no longer any value to all the faith assurances he had already provided. This is the effect of the serpent frame of reference expressed in our generation uh, now as, all uh, oh, that's in the past. What have you done for me lately? So forgetting the value of past faith assurances is detrimental to the health of our faith. So we have the right to look for faith validations in our lives. We'd better not be overly presumptuous or demonstrate some insatiable demand for more and more and more signs, like some kind of adrenaline junkie when it comes to the endless postulations of the signs of the times. So let's be comforted that we have the right to consider faith validations provided in our lives, both corporately to be shared with the entire enlightened community, as well as individually. Let's also recognize that we're still in the period of God's silence. So those personal faith validations are going to be very subtle. Isn't that the nature of being a personal faith validation that God is assuring us in a way that is separate from the rest of the enlightened community. Gideon respected this personal faith validating policy when all he asked for were the two damp or dry fleece signs. 
which were just for him, and not to exalt him in the eyes of those he was commissioned to lead into battle against the Midianites. Now, that's, that's certainly another legitimate application, as God explained to certain men that he commissioned to lead, that he would exalt them in the eyes of those God appointed them to lead with impressive miracles. But we're in the period of God's silence. There are no God-appointed leaders to, for God to validate with miracles. But that doesn't mean we don't have access to these subtle personal faith validation experiences from our God and our King. Let me offer a couple of examples of this strictly personal faith validating application. I, you may have heard me reference these examples before as they impress me very much. But, uh, but they are perfect for this lesson of surgically precise personal faith validations. The apostles Paul and John were particularly challenged in their performance assignments by the Son of God. Paul was chosen by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. <laughs> One would think he would have been the perfect choice to preach the gospel to the already enlightened community of the Jewish people, already in covenant relationship. He was a Jewish law scholar, a student of the renowned Gamaliel, and this would be this would be equivalent of, of graduating as a Harvard valedictorian or a Rhodes scholar. But Jesus sent him to the Gentiles, to the pagans who didn't even have a shred of truth. This inclusion of Gentiles infuriated the Jewish enlightened covenant-bound community and often placed Paul in very challenging and dangerous situations. Paul recounts the physical and emotional challenges he faced in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, the whippings, the beatings, imprisonments, the hunger, the cold, the shipwrecks, and the betrayals. He was stoned. He was bitten by a venomous snake. He was suffered some kind of physical challenge that impaired his preaching effectiveness. He called this physical disability to be a messenger from Satan. The challenges to Paul's faith were quite significant. Paul was given a very personal and private faith validation that was intended to strengthen his resolve, but he was not allowed to share this experience with anyone else. He was given visions of the third heaven. And this is the period after death is eliminated in the, God, in the plan of God and God will be all in all. This is when the only kind of life that will exist is spirit-based life and all flesh will have been cut off in circumcision-like fashion in that eighth divine day. We read of this account in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, in defense of his uh, appointment as apostle. It's, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I can't tell. God knows. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which, is not, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. 
This vision was so compelling. Paul did not know if he experienced this physically or it was just in his mind. And he was forbidden to repeat what he had heard. This experience was exclusively for the apostle who had to endure such challenges in pursuing his assignments from the Son of God. Now, the first heaven would be the first kingdom of God, actually scripturally referred to as heaven and earth. The second heaven will be the new heavens and new earth that Isaiah prophesied about, uh, chapter 65, um, concerning that second kingdom age. What Matthew refers to so frequently as the kingdom of heaven, of or from heaven. Uh, John prophesies in Revelation 4 of how this second heaven will be a sea of glass, indicating that there will be peace among all the nations of the earth. John references the heaven period that follows the, uh, the last immortalization event and the complete elimination of death as being yet another new heaven. But this time, there's no sea at all. We read about this in Revelation 21. It says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, or the former, uh, and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. This absence of the sea indicates the complete absence of separate nations in this third heaven stage in the Creator's plan. What this testimony demonstrates is that God understands we need validations for the challenges to our faith that we're going to face. Paul's challenges were extreme. Therefore, he was given an incredibly powerful faith-validating experience. Just because we're not an Apostle Paul and have not been personally commissioned to do such great things in the service of Jesus Christ does not mean we will not be afforded personal faith-validating experiences in our life in accordance to the measure of faith that will be expected from us. We just need to be observant and thankful, recognizing that the trials of our faith are part of the quality development in the saints that is more important to God than quantity. Better saints as opposed to more. A validation of this understanding of Paul's experience was that the Apostle John had a similar personal faith-validating experience. John, too, was tasked with a significant challenge. He was the last apostle. By the year 96 of the Common Era, Jerusalem and the Temple had been destroyed for far more than two decades. Historical records suggest that all the other apostles had died. Most, if not all, had been brutally murdered. John had been exiled by the Roman government to the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, which was used by Rome as a prison colony. While on Patmos, John was given the set of visions we call the Book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible to be written. Now, in the Book of Revelation, John <coughs> records how he had four sets of seven progressive revelations. There were the seven seals opened, the seven trumpets sounded, the seven bowls were poured out, and the seven thunders testified. 
John was permitted to write down and share the testimony of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. But although he heard the testimony of the seven thunders, he was not to share that testimony. That part of John's incredible visions was exclusively for him. We read this in Revelation 10, uh, beginning of the first verse. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right hand, right foot <laughs> upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. And he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that lives forever and ever who created heaven, and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. So, John hears the testimony of the seven thunders, but he's not permitted to make a record of that testimony. Then we're told the context of the testimony of the seven thunders, when time would be no longer, when time will not exist. Additionally, we're told this seven thunder testimony defines the very end, the finishing of the mystery of God, when that last enemy, <clears throat> death, is eliminated and God will be all in all. There'll be no more need for time. When infinite will be replaced, I'm sorry, when finite, <laughs> finite will be replaced by infinite, and when flesh will be cut off in that circumcision-like fashion in the eighth day, and all will be spirit-based life. The mystery of God will be finished. Just like Paul, John was given this vision of the period beyond the elimination of death and sin, when the Creator will be in perfect harmony with all of creation, that third heaven. And like Paul, John was not permitted to share this testimony. This revelation was for John alone, for his private faith validation due to his extreme assignment. John and Paul both had extremely difficult assignments from Jesus Christ. In the same way, God provided that last faith validation to Gideon that he had, didn't even request. Those, these two apostles were given incredible visions of an infinite spirit-based creative order that were exclusively for those two men. Our point is that God provides faith validations in accordance to the measure of our spiritual course in life. Sometimes we, we are going to feel isolated, alone,
perhaps afraid. Perhaps it'll appear to us that everyone is against us, that we're not appreciated or even loved or respected. I've sometimes referred to this kind of experience in my life as if I'm being held underwater and the only way to breathe is through a thin straw, as if there's no visible avenue of escape. Well, at least without contradicting the behavioral standards that our faith imposes on us. And these are times when we need to remember not only the common faith validations that God has provided that are shared with this entire last generation of the enlightened community, like the the unfolding prophecies of the political resurrection of the nation of Israel and its double overlapping jubilees from 1897 to 1967, and like the archaeological discoveries over the last hundred years that keep validating Bible testimony, and like the absolute perfection of the testimony of the Bible concerning the true gospel, like how the parallel testimony of God's other witness, the features and operating structure of creation, perfectly validates the testimony of the gospel truth, from the vastness of the universe right down to atomic structure, but also in times of significant personal challenge in our individual lives we should also be able to remember those personal faith validations that we've been given by Christ during our life. When he dealt with us directly, when we may have felt his presence in our lives one way or another, perhaps when intense prayers were answered or when we were emotionally crushed or were lifted up somehow through some unforeseen and unexpected set of events. Remembering these experiences is very necessary in times when our faith will be challenged. (laughs) Our faith will be challenged. That's another issue about the principles of faith that we're going to need to deal with. That God refines us in fiery trials, testing and purifying our faith, developing that greater quality that is his primary goal in the development of the saints that will be the necessary eternal companions for his son. Because, of course, it isn't good that man should be alone. Our energies do fade, both physically and spiritually. We need to restore those energies. We, we need fresh air fresh water, and nutritious, solid food. We need rest and and sleep. We need warmth and comfort. We also need spiritual restoration because decay is the control factor in this sin-cursed existence. But with faith validations, we can remember and be renewed. We should not need a constant resupply of new faith validations. Now, this understanding is somewhat like the divine law of pursuing physical holiness on the basis of diet under the laws of the kingdom of God, first kingdom of God. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 11, uh, we read, uh, Speaking of the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which you shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and choose to cut among the beasts, that shall you eat. These three conditions had to all be true for an animal to qualify as divinely clean. 
We've reviewed the doubled significance of the parted and cloven hoof somewhat in this series, and we did spend an awful lot of time on the cloven hoof in um, the Cranston Ecclesia Sunday School a few years ago when our, when our subject was Divisions of the Kingdom Age, and our focus happened to be the cloven, foot, uh, cloven hoof feet of the cherubim. Spent many weeks on that. But in this context, we consider the value derived from remembering or chewing the cud, of deriving greater value from the spiritual food we've been already given by considering it over and over. Isn't this the objection that God referenced when the enlightened community panicked at the report of the ten spies that Israel had ignored all the incredible faith validations he had provided them before and after they left Egypt? Clearly, their faith was insufficient to the task of being confident that God would ensure their victory in war. Now, God did not offer to exclusively drive out the inhabitants of Canaan with hornets. The enlightened community would have to engage in battles. They would have to depend on their faith, their confidence, in order to drive out or annihilate those who were living in the land that God had promised to them, men that were bigger than them, men defending their own homes and families, firing arrows and spears down on them from behind huge stone walls. This would require faith. But despite all the faith validations they had been given, only two men were faithful out of the more than 600,000 men of war, brethren in the truth, in that generation of the enlightened community. So we have been really been addressing both questions two and three, and both considering the use of the definite article as in the faith, as opposed to the indefinite article of a faith, but also addressing question three, which asked, is faith variable? So we've determined there are two aspects to this consideration of the faith, as opposed to a faith. First, there is the doctrinal application of the faith, which is a very specific set of understandings and not general in the least. God demands truth, understanding the one faith. Secondly, there is a confidence application to the faith, a trust application that too has a standard, which is why the definite article the is used in scripture, the faith that we will live by, the faith that justifies us through grace. So in the course of considering this distinction between the terms the faith and a faith, we have certainly determined faith is variable. It's not a simple question of do we have faith or do we not have faith, like a, a simple presence or an absence. There are degrees of faith, and there is a faith that is insufficient for God's approval, and there is a faith that is capable of qualifying for God's God and Christ's acceptability. Faith is certainly variable. Jesus often performed miracles that were dependent on a degree of faith. Um, Jesus told the Roman centurion at Capernaum that the, the servant he asked to be healed would be healed in direct accordance to the faith he had demonstrated in Romans 8. 
We read, And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so be it done to you. And his servant was healed in that selfsame hour. In fact, Jesus noted that level of faith that the centurion demonstrated after witnessing his humble confidence uh, in Matthew 8 and uh, before that, beginning in verse 5. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Now Jesus defines this faith, this respectful confidence, this level of understanding and humble trust to be the greatest he had witnessed in the entire enlightened community to that point in his ministry and, and throughout his life to that point. Now, this was a quality comparison in relation to faith. You may have heard heard me suggest before that this was probably Cornelius, the Roman centurion of the Italian band that Jesus later assigned to be the point of official introduction for the gospel being offered to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. I, I just don't see the very slim possibility of there being another Roman centurion with a post in Judah that would have that kind of faith for which Jesus would assign such a highly significant stage in the development of the ecclesia. Our point, however, is the variable nature of faith that Jesus highlights here. There were certainly lesser degrees of faith that Jesus had witnessed, but that lesser faith had still been successful in facil facilitating one being healed. A two blind men uh, <clears throat> followed Jesus into a house asking for their sight. Jesus asked if they believed that he was capable of healing. They replied, yes. He touched their eyes and declared, according to your faith, be it unto you. And then they could see. The woman who touched the hem of the garment of Jesus, that blue fringe that God had commanded to be there, was healed of her bodily issue. Now Jesus stops, and when it's determined who had drawn this healing power from him, Jesus told her that her faith had healed her. Now, just as a side note, uh, this qualifying feature of that faith that she demonstrated is defined in the one part of the body of Jesus that she reached for, demonstrating that she was confident would be the source of that healing power. She reached for that hem, that blue fringe, not his hands with which he had healed uh, so many with his touch, and not his face or those lips that spoke God's word. The hem of Christ's garment represented the source of the power of Jesus of Nazareth to heal. We read in uh, that law in Numbers 15, that, that clothing law, 
And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and to do them, and that you may speak not after your own heart, with your own eyes, after which you used to go whoring, that you may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, who, which brought you up in the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. She reached for the one point on the body and clothing of the Son of God that declared she believed his testimony, that he was the Son of God, and that this is where his healing power was sourced. Not, not Beelzebub, like some of, the, some of the leaders of the enlightened community would claim a little later in Christ's ministry. This suffering, diseased woman for 12 years had demonstrated an exceptional level of faith and understanding without even asking permission to be healed. And Jesus assured her that it was her faith that qualified her to be made whole. She demonstrated that quality of faith that was sufficient for enjoying the wonderful healing benefit of the power of God. We've noted this variable nature of other behavioral expectations in our committed service to our Creator and to our King. We've noted that there are various degrees of love, that there is a weak and poor quality, frigid, cold love, and there's a strong and high quality love, hot or cold. We've noted God's requirement for applying different degrees of love to different relationships in our lives. How God demands the greatest of all loves for himself, eclipsing the intensity and the related responsibilities of all other loves. And we've noted that required love of our neighbor. And it's only qualified as being equal to the love of self. And we've noted the new love commandment that Jesus issued at the Last Supper, requiring that brothers and sisters love each other more than themselves, and therefore obviously more than their neighbors, but always less than God. There's certainly a variableness in the principle of love that defines its quality. We don't simply have love or do not have love. And we noted how Jesus made this distinction between his dinner host, Simon the Pharisee, and the woman who washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. Jesus declared, um, Wherefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. There is an acceptable quality of love and an unacceptable degree of love. We also saw this quality variation when we considered the principle of righteousness. Uh, Jesus made the undoubtedly shocking statement in his Sermon on the Mount, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those, those within the enlightened community who insist righteousness is not variable, and there are many today, 
suggests that the level of righteousness that the, the scribes and Pharisees had was simply, well, that was zero. <laughs> that one is either assigned righteousness or they are not. But there are no quality distinctions when it comes to righteousness. <laughs> well, we certainly prove this premise to be completely false. But the, the answer to this zero presumption is that Jesus himself assigns a level of rightness to the scribes and the Pharisees. At the end of his ministry, two days before his death, Jesus warned everyone at the temple in Matthew 23. Um, then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you, observe that observe and do. But do you not after their works, for they say and do not. Jesus points out that the scribes and the Pharisees were saying the right things. They just weren't doing the right things. Therefore, when Jesus declared that unless our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he was certainly referencing the difference between a divinely acceptable degree of personal righteousness within the enlightened community from an unacceptable degree of personal righteousness. The serpent, that serpent philosophy of equality that all righteousness is equal, that all love is equal, that all faith is equal. That's a very deceptive and subtle and very dangerous serpent delusion. Equality is not a divine principle. Just as there are degrees of love and degrees of righteousness, there are certainly degrees of faith. God wants quality more than quantity. Better committed faithful servants more than simply more servants. The next logical step would be to consider the next two questions together. Number four, how much faith is enough? And what constitutes a weak faith? Well, since faith is variable, and we have seen how there are degrees of divinely acceptable faith and degrees of unacceptable faith, then we need to understand how much faith is enough for divine acceptability. Let's, let's just not fall into the very common trap of looking for a universal minimal acceptability standard. And this is a common rule for about 80% of the workforce of mankind. And this is why labor unions have been so successful, and it's also why our Christadelphian community has historically advised us not to join labor unions, if at all possible. The venom of this serpent principle of equality poisons a wide range of presumptions um, in political, social, religious, and employment environments. Jesus certainly complained about the faith of his own disciples being little. I would think that statement that he made about the faith of the Gentile Roman centurion being greater than any degree of faith he had witnessed in the entire enlightened community at that point would be rather stinging to his disciples that he looked back at as he said it. He repeats this, this assessment of an insufficient faith when he descends from the Transfiguration Mount with Peter, James, and John. In Matthew's account, in chapter 17, we read, And when they were come to the multitude, 
there came to him a certain man kneeling down and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and sore vexed. For oftentimes he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Now let's understand here that these disciples that could not heal this boy with what appears to be grand mal epilepsy had certainly healed others before this when Jesus had sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom in many cities they had healed the mentally and the physically diseased but not this time Jesus calls his own disciples faithless that had to hurt had to be embarrassing as this was stated publicly as we're told there was a multitude waiting for Jesus and the other three disciples to return back from the mountain. We'll have to come back to this incident when we address the issue of how to grow our faith. But our issue at the moment is recognizing there are variable issues of faith quality within the enlightened community that can encourage the approval of Jesus, but also discourage that approval as seen here. The degree of our faith is demonstrated in our choices, in our actions, and particularly the degree of effort we invest in activities that define the level of faith we may possess at any particular time. As we noted last week, we, this can engage the conscience, but a deadened conscience is evidence of a deadened faith. Jesus explains how excessive concern for material needs is a demonstration of a weak faith, a poor quality faith. And this was during that same Sermon on the Mount that we've been referencing. However, let's avoid that all or nothing frame of reference. Jesus will not be suggesting we should just sit still and wait for things to come to us, just fall out of the sky food, clothing, shelter. He's addressing the issue of priorities on the basis of faith, confidence, trust. So we read in, in Matthew chapter 6, no man can serve two masters, for he'll, he, either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither, nor gather into barns, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Or why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They, they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, 
shall I not so much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Wherewith all shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. This particular faith gauge issue is a distinct and significant issue in our current last generation of the ecclesial age. I cannot imagine a generation that has been more obsessed with materialism than this generation. We are endlessly besieged with advertising, declaring that, well, we, we're worth all of these indulgences. Solicitations come by landline phones, unwelcome ones, and cell phones, and computers, and internet, and radios, and even in every category of entertainment. These blatant and unapologetic temptations blare at us endlessly, day after day. We can't even drive down the road without indulgent solicitations from billboards and business signs. We're encouraged to be consumers, what scripture defines as blood eaters, embracing dangerous levels of debt in order to have that house or that car or that technology. There are even diabolical systems in place to force greater indulgences. It would, be, it would be challenging to avoid a dependence on technology at this time in our society. But there is software and there's hardware. The software is regularly changing, certainly not because it needs to, but these changes issue, they ensure a continuing flow of income for the software engineering sponsors. But if one does not upgrade the hardware, the software will not run properly. Satisfaction is the enemy of our economy. Complaining and dissatisfaction has become the oil permitting the smooth operation of this fairly fragile uh, global commercial engine. We've seen that commercial disruption over the last year due to the pandemic. An entirely new paradigm has been developed that isn't going to change back even if and when we get past this the specific critical stage of the COVID virus. As faithful disciples of God in Christ, we are advised to step outside that social and commercial vacuum of a self-indulgent presumption where we are expected to demand our rights as opposed to accepting our responsibilities. That fleshly and unthankful and self-indulgent frame of reference is a quicksand, where the more we struggle, the more mired we become. This appreciation for what we have, as opposed to longing for what we don't have yet, is part of that faith equation, trusting that God will provide. Again, it's not being suggested we lazily sit around just waiting to be fed and clothed. 
mean, the book of Proverbs offers abundant exhortations about being productive and industrious, uh, particularly the last chapter about the virtuous woman. I, I remember speaking at a, uh, being asked to speak at an industry educational event, ooh boy, many, many years ago. I explained that before I started work every morning in my office, I would read a chapter from the book of Proverbs in the Bible. I explained it was what I considered to be the most valuable business education book I'd ever read, and I've read a lot of them. It was written by one of the more, uh, one, well, one of the most financially richest men that ever lived, Solomon. So he wrote from experience. So Jesus isn't telling us that a great faith will demonstrate a complete absence of concern for what we eat and wear and, and where we live. He's addressing the issue of priorities and developing a correctly balanced value ladder to the challenges in our lives. We'll have to continue our considerations about faith uh, next week and next class and begin to consider how Scripture offers insights into how to grow our faith, how to progress from a weak or challenged faith to a strong faith, recognizing that Jesus would highlight how his own disciples, they were completely confident in the degree of their faith, their individual faith, actually only had little faith. Um, there are ways that are spelled out in Scripture for us to uh, uh, pursue in order to grow our faith. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.